WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Some of you who may have been listening to The Sci-Files over the last year have maybe heard an episode where we had Liang Zhao with Maddie and Brishan as well, and they were talking about how wastewater could predict the increase in COVID-19 cases. Today we're joined by Liang Zhao again so that he can give us an update about his research. Hi Liang, thanks for joining us. May you please give people a recap about your research last year and how it's progressed over time now? Hi, thanks for having me. My name is Liang Zhao. I'm a second year PhD student in environmental engineering at Michigan State University. And my advisor is Dr. Aaron Zagoraraki. So since the since 2020, uh, we have been doing a COVID-19 wastewater surveillance project in Detroit uh, metropolitan area. And in the last year, we used a new technology, which is called a digital droplet PCR technology to identify SARS-CoV-2, the virus that caused COVID-19, wastewater samples. And there are a lot of progress in um, establishing the models for COVID-19 wastewater surveillance and COVID-19 lifetime illustration, which I'm going to talk about later, which is also very exciting to talk in the program. It's nice to hear from you again, Liang. As the Omicron's prevalence has increased over the past couple of months, a lot of things that people are becoming more familiar with are these different kinds of tests, such as PCR and RT-PCR tests. But you said that you're working on DD-PCR tests when it comes to the wastewater. How does DD-PCR work, and how is it different? Yeah, so the PCR technologies has always had a very basic reaction, where the DNA denatures when the samples get heated, and then the heated DNA becomes two single-stranded DNA. Uh, and then next enzyme, which is called tag polymerase, comes in and then builds up two new single-stranded DNA and, and combine with the old single-stranded DNA then become two new double-stranded DNA. And this circle of denaturing and building DNA continues 20, 30, and 40 times and creating more copies of DNA. So that's the basic of PCR reaction. Also, the PCR is a short version for polymerase chain reaction. And the DDPCR technologies we have implementing in testing wastewater samples since last year is a short version for digital droplet PCR. So basically, it's a digital version of a PCR technology. And the reaction that I just talked about, about the PCR technology, happens in hundreds of thousands of little droplets, which is oil and water, water mixed droplets in a PCR machine. Actually, the, a set of machines that combine digital PCR system. So basically, each of the droplets in the tube could be regarded as a single measurement. So finally, using a PCR radar, that radar could help us to detect in each single droplet what's the concentration of SARS-CoV-2. And then we're able to know the virus concentration in the samples. I think that the difference between qPCR and DDPCR is qPCR is on a plate and, and each uh, well is a, a single measurement. And DDPCR is also on a plate, but each well has uh, hundreds of thousands of droplets. It could be measured. So there are four types of machines in the DDPCR system. And in the very first machine is called the 
uh, oil job droplet generation uh, machine, and it it actually generate oil drops and and mix with the reaction liquid well, and then it it forms hundreds of thousands of uh, oil water emulsion droplets. And and then we can use and then there is a DDPCR droplet reader comes in and that could help to detect a target concentration in each droplet, each oil and water mix. So that's the difference between DDPCR and QPCR. So with DDPCR, do you need to have like a primer, or do you need to still put it through heat, or does it just matter that the DNA is in that droplet? Yeah, everything everything actually with the PCR is the same with DDPCR. The only thing different is uh, DDPCR put the reaction in the mixture of oil and water. So we need a primer and probe to for the target, and everything is the same with PCR. It also needs heat with DNA denaturing and and synthesizing. So everything the only thing is it happens in the oil water mix, and since it, it divide so each well is divided into hundreds thousands of reaction mixture. So it's more precise and more specific, and it could detect a very tiny difference in the sample's concentration. That makes a lot of sense to me. I actually work with something called a nano drop, where all I need is two microliters, which is very, very small, and that little volume can give me so much information. So now that you have this new technology, what have you been doing with it? If I recall, a year ago, you said that you were monitoring the wastewater in Detroit. Have you expanded to other areas? Yeah, we have been using this technology in the place of before we use qPCR technology to identify and quantify SARS-CoV-2 in wastewater. Now we're using DDPCR. So DDPCR it needs less labor, so it could free more personnel in our lab, and it could test more samples comparing to qPCR, and it also could target very tiny difference in the sample concentration. So it could it's very sensitive and very precise. So we have been using this one. This DDPCR technology to monitor the the virus concentration of COVID in the Detroit, Wayne, Macon, Oakland counties. So the same area like last year. And the difference is uh, now we've been monitoring a SARS-CoV-2 or the virus called COVID-19 for more than 15 months. So we're able to capture the three peaks of COVID-19 in the community, also the three peaks of SARS-CoV-2 concentration in wastewater. Then we're able to build up a model which could involve both the clinical data and the wastewater concentrations of COVID into one model. And also we consider other parameters into the model. Then we build up a prediction model. This prediction model could give us lifetime. The lifetime is. Between the COVID-19 wastewater surveillance clinical incidents in the community, so this lifetime could give us an early warning、uh, of COVID-19 fluctuations in the community. That's one important discovery. The second discovery is this model could fit for SARS-CoV-2 fluctuations in the community and also could predict COVID-19 cases in the community. It's incredible that you've been able to develop this model over the past 15 months for the way that COVID-19 might populate in our state or even around the country if the model was expanded to other geographical areas. Over the past year, we've seen the rise of the Delta variant and more recently the Omicron variant. Whenever you're doing your DDPCR tests, can you tell whether or not a new variant has entered the waste stream, and how difficult is it to distinguish from other strains of COVID-19? 
to the best of my knowledge, the, the ways are being able to identify if there are new variants in the community. I think from, from the DDPCR test that we, we did, one is if we see the low concentration of SARS-CoV-2, the original uh, variant caused COVID-19, which means there are other variants that are circulating in the community. Another thing is we use the specific primary and target uh, specific variant and then we can use DTPCR to identify those variants, Omicron, Delta, and UK variant. So uh, we tested the UK variant for a couple of months, and then we focused on the SARS-CoV-2, the, the major variant. And we are now the next step of our work is to test the Omicron, Delta. I've been also reading some publications, Omicron, like 95% that are circulating in the tests. So I believe the next step is once we summarize, we sum up the current work of building the SARS-CoV-2 model, then we will uh, shift the work to testing the variant, the Omicron and Delta, and be able to find some new discoveries there. You had mentioned that you all are able to detect an increase in COVID-19 in the community before the community has actually seen the spike. How much earlier are you all detecting it beforehand, and how can you help the community with that information? Yeah, so we first conducted the extensive literature review trying to figure out that time range, that lag time. So the lag time we have been always talking about between COVID-19 wastewater civilians and the clinical data in the community is the time that we see the wastewater concentration of COVID in the samples. And then that actually gave us a head of time of upcoming fluctuations or peaks of COVID-19 in the community. Through the literature review, that time is about three to four weeks. So we created a timeline for COVID-19 wastewater civilians. So it has uh, two parts of a uh, timeline. One timeline is the clinical data collection timeline. So imagine the first, second timeline is wastewater surveillance data timeline. So imagine a person get infected by COVID-19 on day one, and about zero to 14 days later, the virus incubate in the host bodies. And, and then after day 14, they develop the first symptoms. That's according to the newest publication. The incubation time of SARS-CoV-2 is uh, zero to 14 days. And then peer, uh, prior to that first day to develop symptoms, which is day 14 after infections, about five to seven days, the people, the host, are squeezing the virus into the wastewater system. So uh, this, in other words, it means on day seven, the hosts are excreting the virus into the wastewater system. So that's the earliest time we could see the virus in the wastewater samples. So now we, we try to remember there is a day seven. So day 14, when, when people develop first symptoms, it, it takes about one to two days for them to get be tested because there is a delayed access to the unlimited access to the testing and, and people's willingness to get tested. And about day 16, the clinical data start to record how much people got COVID. And that's a starting time when the clinical data start to pour in. But it takes another three to nine days for the clinical data of COVID-19 processing and the collection. And so about day 25, uh, we are able to see the complete picture of the COVID-19 infections. So we just talked about there is the day seven, now is the day 25. So the lag time of the, the lag time between these two important days are three to four weeks. So that's a based on literature review. And based on our real-time monitoring data, 
for Detroit area, we are able to see there is a four to five weeks of lag time ahead of the clinical cases in the community. In other words, when we see the wastewater concentrations reach a peak or uh, reach a low level, it means uh, three, four to five weeks later, the clinical cases in the community in Detroit area are more, most likely to get to that same level, either reaching a peak or reaching a low level. Yeah, that lag time that is associated with normal COVID-19 detection, I can imagine would lead to a lot of delays in actually showing how the COVID-19 virus is spreading throughout a certain community. Now, how was the work that you were just describing and sharing the information on whether or not COVID-19 is spread throughout the community different from the lag time that is established whenever COVID-19 enters the wastewater system? Yeah, so the lifetime appears in our study to be four to five weeks for the Detroit area. So there are many studies uh, in the world uh, are reporting the lifetime of wastewater surveillance of COVID-19 prior to the clinical incidents in the community. So the, the lifetime happens, I think one to my to the best of my knowledge is we collected uh, the supernatant of wastewater in the wastewater treatment plant. That means uh, the virus is uh, the newest virus and it's, uh, it's up to the most recent date, the virus. So there is no virus that are from the past. In, in, in other words, there are some other labs that are testing uh, wastewater, but they collect also the solids of water. Uh, solids, there are viruses that could attach to the solids. So there's certainly a higher concentration in those testing, but they couldn't, you, you couldn't tell uh, what the virus attached to the solid or in the liquid are from the most recent or from the past. So we're testing the suspended or the supernatant part of the wastewater and get the, the newest virus testing. So that's the most recent virus that excreted from the, the population. And that, that actually is one key to being able to identify there is a lack of wastewater surveillance prior to the clinical data. So we're going to submit a, a paper uh, about this. So in the paper, there is a, a wastewater surveillance timeline. You could see that the supernatant part of the virus, uh, of the wastewater, when we see there is a virus in that, there is only a detention time of 12 to 24 hours. So when we test it, so imagine, so think if we test the wastewater on day one, so we could see the wastewater concentration of the virus on day one. So there is no precipitation of the virus or attaching to the other solids. So it's pretty straightforward, the, the virus concentration. If we take a step backwards, think about the, the timeline, then we could able to tell there is a lag time. So the incubation time of SARS-CoV-2 in the host is 14 days. So on day 14, the, the people usually develop the first symptoms. And prior to day 14, about day 7, they started to sh shed the virus into the wastewater system through bodily fluids like urine and fecal materials. So at day 7, we're able to see there is SARS-CoV-2 concentration in the wastewater because the patient started to shed the virus. And day 14 is a time when the people discover that they got COVID-19. And if this is a common cold or if they are willing to get tested, so, it, so according to the, the most recent literature, it takes about one to two days for the people to get tested. Or not, in another case, in some resource uh, limited area, like in Africa or other parts of the area, they are unable to be tested because of the limited resources of testing case or testing personnel. So that time could be even longer, like seven days. 
So on day 16, that's usually two days after the first symptoms develop. On day 16, that's a time when the clinical data started to recording. So after the clinical data collection and processing time, about three to nine days within the government, within the health department, then day 25, that's the time we see the clinical data. So we just talk about there is the time when they share the virus, when the people share the virus into the wastewater system is seven days after they get infected. So between this range is about 21 days or three to four weeks. So that's how the lag time comes in. For all of their population, that they could at least monitor the community. For example, I remember when school was starting, like with Lansing schools, they had actually said that they were going to go virtual for a while because they saw an increase of the cases. This is something that I feel could even recommend to schools and to other places to basically be more cautious and maybe to go virtual for a little as well. Speaking of Lansing and other regions, do you have plans to implement this in other places other than the Macomb and the Oakland County areas? Yeah, currently we're monitoring, we're implementing this technology to monitor. The reason is Detroit has a large population and the place where we collect wastewater samples from is a water resource recovery facility. They have the largest single site wastewater treatment plant in the country. So it could collect a huge amount of wastewater samples that we can analyze. And those wastewater samples are collected from three major interceptors that covers a big area. It's a very large area covering a large population. Considering a smaller cities or smaller like Lansing and other regions, I think that it's also worse to implement this technology to see how the COVID-19 wastewater surveillance could be useful for this type of regions. I know there are many other projects going on in other states. They also build up COVID-19 wastewater surveillance project in their major cities, and it's quite approved to be very useful. I think it needs more research definitely for cities like Lansing and smaller cities and towns to implement this technology. I remember when I was in Miami for winter break that they were also testing the wastewater to see it for the presence of COVID-19. Now that you've collected all of this data and developed this model for the DDPCR, what are the next steps for your work? I think the next step, focusing on optimizing the model, that's one step. Another thing is we're trying to continue monitoring Detroit metropolitan area using this technology for COVID-19 wastewater surveillance. Another thing is we're trying to now work on more on virus, uh, Omicron, Delta, and other virus. And in, in our group, we, we currently have several directions that our colleagues work on. One group is work on the neighborhood testing, the neighborhood of Detroit, and one group work on the sequencing of the different virus and of SARS-CoV-2, trying to uh, picture the genomics of uh, of the virus in the Detroit area. We'll come to develop the model and improve more, involve more parameters that could consider also the population and, and also some biomarkers and improve the model and illustrate the lag time better and more precise. Well, Liang, it was really good to talk to you a year later. I know you're only in your second year of graduate school, but I look forward to hopefully hearing from you again before you graduate. Good luck on the rest of your research. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. To hear more about us and learn more about our episodes, check out scifiles.org. If you're a current MSU student that would like to be interviewed, please reach out to us at scifiles at impact89fm.org. 
We'll catch you next week on The Sci-Files, and remember, the truth is in the science.